My name is Mackenzie Jensen. This is my mom, Michelle. Our scripture reading today is found in Genesis 50, 22 to 26, Exodus 1, 6 to 11, and Exodus 2, 23 to 25. Let us stand for the reading of God's word. Genesis 50, 22 through 26. Joseph stayed in Egypt along with all his father's family. So... Then Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and come and take you up from the land to the land he promised. And know to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110. And after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. Exodus 1, 6-11. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous, and, if war breaks out, will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country." So they put slave masters over to oppress them with forced labor. Then, after many years of God's people living in slavery and indescribable oppression, this is what we read in Exodus 2:23 to 25. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and then he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites, and he was concerned about them. This is the word of God. Thanks Thanks be to God. God. You may be seated. Thank you, Mackenzie and Michelle, mom and daughter. We are beginning a new series today. We're calling it The Great Escape. Uh, it's not original to me, that title, in case, in just in case you wondered. And it's in the book of Exodus, in which uh, we're going to take a journey together with God's people, going all the way from slavery through a wilderness, all the way to the end. And the thing we're going to see is the way that Exodus ends, that God was always with them. The glory of the Lord, the presence of God, was always there in every human situation. That's what we're going to see. We're going to be doing this all summer. Uh, A friend of mine, who's a pastor, did 192 messages in Exodus. I'm going to do 15. So we are going to go running through. Now, perhaps you notice that Michelle and Mackenzie also read from Genesis. Did anybody notice that? Do you know why? Because Exodus is a sequel. Now, it made me feel pretty good being here in Southern California because... Hollywood, not too far away from us, and some of us in the media, uh, entertainment industry, we love sequels, right? And American audiences love sequels. I mean, when the first movie is good, you almost go walking out thinking, I hope there's going to be a sequel. <laughs> Don't please? And, and how many of them there are? Um, I just started writing a few. Uh, Toy Story, uh, Shrek, Indiana Jones series, Godfather... Spider-Man, Superman, Aliens, Star Wars, Star Trek. Last night we had a number of people in the service from the entertainment industry and they started yelling them out. I couldn't even keep up with them. 
Now, you would have wanted to, but this is a 9 o'clock service, and we don't do that here. I, I just know. But you know that when you see a good first movie, uh, it often sets the stage for the sequel right at the end. And when you watch a good sequel, don't you want to go back and see the first one again just to get that back story? Now, that's going to help you to understand what's going on here in the book of Exodus. It's a sequel in the five books of Moses. And I just want to tell you, the first one was a blockbuster. <laughs> in fact, that book, you know, it was the book of Genesis, had ended with the text that I wanted you to see. It had ended in Genesis 50 with a foreshadowing of a sequel to come. Because throughout Genesis, God had drawn to himself a people. After people had sinned, God had made a promise that he was going to do something to offer hope to human beings made in his image again. And he was going to do it through a people. So he drew, draw, drew together this family with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, these four fathers of the uh, people of Israel. And he had walked with them. He had met them. They'd had encounters. All of that is in the book of Genesis. And he had given them promises that he would preserve this people, that he would give them a land, and that eventually all the nations of the earth would be blessed through them. Wonderful promises. And, and in fact, at the end of, of the book of Genesis, I'm going to show it to you again. Joseph, just before he dies, reminds us of those promises. It just sounds like he's setting the stage for the sequel. This is what he said. I am about to die, but God surely will come to your aid and he will take you out of this land. They were in Egypt and take you to the land promised on oath by God to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid and then you must carry my bones out of this place. See, he's in the wrong place. So Joseph died at the age of 110, and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. All right, you see it, don't you? The stage is set. Book one had ended with a promise. But I'll just tell you, as book two opens, it's many, many years later, and the fulfilling of, of those promises just seems to be absolutely impossible. All that the Israelites had in Exodus 1 and 2 is a promise. Because all of those things that had happened back there in the first one seemed so uh, long, long ago in a galaxy far, far away. That, that's what it seemed like. And all they had were these promises. And suddenly when I thought about it that way, I thought, this book written so long ago, this book of Exodus, is so relevant to us when we show up at church on a Sunday morning like in this service. Because sometimes you and I are going through some really tough times in our lives. Sometimes things happen that we wonder, how on earth is God going to ever do anything good out of this? Have you ever had that? And then you come in and the pastor opens up this book, this ancient book, and reminds you of the promises that God is here and who he is and what he says he's going to do. And sometimes when we come in, you leave church and all you have to hold on to is a promise. And whether that promise is something you can believe in and will enable you to live in the midst of. See, the question of Exodus as it opens is, how do we live when everything seems to be going wrong? We see no way that the future is going to be different. And yet we keep being told that God says, I am there and I know what I'm doing. How do we live? So that's what we're going to think about today. I've called it, you've seen, when all we have 
is a promise. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go back and tell a little bit of that story again. Now, I know some of you know the story. Some of you have only seen the story of Exodus in movies. I know that. So I want you to get it right. I want you to get it right. I want to go back and look at the story. And then I want to give you a few just first lessons out of this great, great journey, the great escape that we're going to be looking at. Are you ready? The story, and I, I thought I'd put it this way to let you see the situation that the people of Israel were in. Uh, they were a people, the way I'll put it, in chapter 1 who seem to have no future at all in human eyes. And that takes you to chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. The Israelites, who were there in, in, in Egypt, were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly. They increased in numbers and became so numerous that this land of Egypt was filled with them. Now, remembering the first book, we remember in Genesis 1 and 2 that human beings were to fill the earth. Do you remember? And multiply. And that's what the Israelites were doing. But then in verse 8, a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. And with that verse, we begin a story of two full chapters of it seem, seemingly ever-worsening despair for God's people. Uh, I know we have English teachers here in the church. What Exodus has, I've told you about this in other parts of the Bible, is a U-shaped plot. Does that make sense to you? It starts high, it starts well, but then things just seem to go worse and worse and worse, going down, 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 before they ever seem to even begin to turn around. So verse 7 starts high. Things seem to be going well. They're doing what God says, increasing numbers. They are multiplying. It seems like God is blessing them. But in verse 8, boom, the U starts going down. A new ruler, a new king, came into Egypt. Joseph, the one who had brought them there. God actually brought them there. Joseph, the great leader, was no longer known or recognized by this Pharaoh, by this Pharaoh. And what he does is he begins to oppress them. Um, those of you who like to read history, you know that almost always when there's a major change in a political regime, and there was a major one almost certainly in Egypt at the time, a whole new dynasty starting, often the new leader comes in and wants to make sure everybody knows that he's in control sometimes does something very strong to try to show people I'm the one in charge here and that's what this Pharaoh does. Doesn't it make sense to you? He looks out there and he does it using the oldest trick in the book, racist paranoia. He picks out one people and as so often has happened in history, he picks out God's people. You see the work of the evil one in many ways trying to wipe out God's people so that no Messiah might ever be born through these people. Uh, he's going to do that and, and what he does is he picks them out and he begins to say, look at these Israelites out there. There's so many of them that if they ever turn against us, we won't be able to win. Now, you need to know there is absolutely no evidence that the uh, Jewish people were in any way anything other than, than the best of citizens in that country. But what we see happening here is exactly what we've seen at other times, like in Hitler's era. This pharaoh decided that he was going to try to Strengthen his own hand and unify his people by making the Jewish people the focus of this nationwide and totally undeserved hate campaign. So you begin to read about it. You can read chapter 1. I'll just ask you to do this. You know what happened. He made them slaves. He began to oppress them, thinking that this would uh, 
would do some harm, but the oppression didn't do a bit of good. <laughs> you can read it. They continued to multiply even more. But that success, you think, okay, it might still work out, doesn't change the Pharaoh's mind. Things only get worse. You know, he takes away their straw. He makes them work, hard, work harder. He oppresses them more and more. And it all comes to a head. Just look at verse 14 of Exodus 1. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar, with all kinds of work in the fields. And in all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. And then, because that didn't seem to be working, came what would have seemed to have been the most shattering blow of all. Because Pharaoh introduces, kind of like what we saw in, uh, in uh, Cambodia and, and in other places, systematic genocide. He orders that all of the Jewish boys are to be killed. But then, <laughs> you know this story, don't you? God uses these remarkable midwives um, who choose to obey God and to fear God more than to fear the king. And they won't kill the Jewish boys because God has said that human life is to be preserved. And they do it using the most feeble excuse imaginable. Uh, just look at chapter 1, verse 19. Why have you returned so early? Uh, no, I got the wrong place there. Well, verse... Yes, yes, verse 19. The midwives would come to the Pharaoh and he says they keep having more children. And they would say, well, these Hebrew women aren't like Egyptian women. They are vigorous. They give birth before the midwives can even get there. It's just an amazing thing. But that didn't satisfy Pharaoh. In verse 22, he told anyone anywhere to seize Jewish boys and throw them into the river and destroy them. So I just want to tell you, when uh, the book of Exodus opens, in human eyes, this is a people with absolutely no future. Now I want you to think about it as you come to church today. Don't we sometimes complain about our situation, our lot in life? Maybe you never do. But we usually do, do, don't we? So maybe we can begin by feeling together with God's people there in Egypt. Life was oppressive for them. They had all these promises of a God who made heaven and earth, a, a God who had chosen them as his people, a God who had said he would preserve them and give them a land. But when they heard this, don't you imagine, maybe some of you feel this way, you have heard your parents and your grandparents and great-grandparents talk about God, but in the midst of some challenges that you faced, you begin to wonder if a God even exists. And if God does exist, the God of Genesis, does he really care? And then the situation gets worse because, number one, they, they weren't only a people without a future. Then they also had no apparent leader to get them out of this and make things different. Look at verses 1 and 2. That brings us to chapter 2. And it starts this way. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman and she became pregnant. See, it's, it's going to be a Mother's Day sermon. See it? It's coming. And she gave birth to a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, first mother ever to say that, uh, she hid him for three months. Now I've been here a long time. Those of you who come to church... Many pastors only like to read theology books. I know that. I like stories. I like characters and I like plots and I like ancient stories. And so if you do like to read stories, you know that when something like this happens, people are in trouble and then just out of the blue, 
A child is going to be born who's going to be a remarkable child. You know that in every ancient story, that's the beginning of the change, the twist in the story. You know this is going to be the one who's going to be the leader and the rescuer. So a boy is born. His mother says he is a remarkable child. Uh, courageously, she finds a way to save this child's life. She pre prepares this basket so that he wouldn't drown in the Nile River. And actually, as I read this, Jewish storytellers are fantastic. If you don't take time to read through these stories and just let God speak to you through this, you're missing something wonderful. And here, I think the Jewish storyteller just throws in this little bit of, um, of humor because Pharaoh had said that all these Jewish boys were to be thrown into the Nile River, but he didn't say that they couldn't be thrown inside of a waterproof basket. It's just, it's just such a great story. And then an, another irony. It's Pharaoh's daughter who discovers him. And uh, this looks like a coincidence, but, but it really, deep down, we know that God is at work. And then you keep reading it. Pharaoh's daughter arranges for this boy's own mother to become its nurse and to pay her to do it. Now, come on, on Mother's Day. Mothers, don't you think this is a good deal? I wonder how many of us would complain about being paid to nurse our own children. And I'll tell you in just a concise way in verse 10, without wasting any words, Moses is returned back to his mother where he could learn about his own people and learn about those promises that God had given in the book of Genesis. And, and, and an increasing irony. Here, Moses is one of those dangerous Jewish boys that Pharaoh seems to be fearing. In fact, the one that it seems he has the most reason to fear, now being brought up in his own house, at his own personal expense, as a part of his own family. And we know that if somebody is actually going to be that rescuer, that it's going to need to be somebody who understands his own people and the promises made to them. He'd need to... Needed to be in his home, but also needed to understand the culture and the politics and the language of the places. It's amazing. We just look at this and we say, aha, this is going to be the leader who crushes this tyrant, this Pharaoh who is there. But just when you read the story, as we begin to have this optimism, but now we're going to see everything change. Moses sees an Egyptian oppressing one of his people, and he thinks he'll help God out a bit hurry it up, and he kills this, this Egyptian. And far from his own people saying, good, let's get this thing started, they scoff at him for it and say, are you going to kill the rest of us too? And they won't follow him. And even though Moses thinks, maybe, maybe I can hide this from the Pharaoh, and so the, no, the Pharaoh finds out, and he tries to kill him, and far from Moses it's standing up to him and saying, no, let's start the insurrection, in cowardice, he goes running away and he goes out to Midian into the desert and he doesn't go there to, to build an army or to plot uh, military tactics. You know what he does? We find him at the well. What? Nobody's surprised. You, I'm never surprised. Do you know, if you read stories... It's at the well that all the romance stories begin. 
Man, we start thinking, oh no, this one, this sequel's going to be a chick flick. It's going to be Sleepless in the Sahara or something. It's, it's, that, that's what we think. And it does happen. He flirts with the girls. He marries one of them. And he settles down in Midian. There is no chance that he's going to go back to Egypt. And it all climaxes down in verse 23. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. But the Israelites Israelites groaned in their slavery and they cried out and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. So, when you read this first part, up to verse 23, it seems like they have no hope for any future. They had no hope because the leader didn't seem to be the kind of leader who was going to make any difference. But then we ask the question, what do they have? And that brings me back to the title of my message. They were a people with a promise. And the promise they had was from God. It's the only thing they had left. And if you have your Bible, I want you to mark these verses. The second half of verse 23 and into verse 24. The Israelites groaned in their slavery. They cried out. Their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. And notice what God does. He heard their groaning. He remembered his promise, his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and Jacob. And then God looked down on the Israelites. And our version, my version says he was concerned about them. So God's promises. Do you know that God's promises are different from our own? Do you know that? First, because you and I often forget, right? And second... Even when we do remember, we only go back and apologize that we forgot. But God is different from us because, I don't know if you notice, you and I are mortal. So we are limited in our knowledge. We do forget. And even if we remember, we're limited in our power. Sometimes we just don't have the ability to do everything. But the beauty of, of walking with God as our Father is that He's not limited in either one of those ways. He is not limited in knowledge. And the word is omniscient. And he is not limited in power. And you know, the word is omnipotent. So God here had no limit in his knowledge. You know, it had been 600 years since he had made that promise. He made 600 years. I would have probably forgotten, wouldn't you? (laughs) But God remembered it as if he had made it just today. He had no limit to his knowledge. God knew what he would do. God sees, he hears, he remembers, and then... And especially the end of verse 25. I want to bring you back to this. God looked on the Israelites and my version says, and it is a terrible translation, was concerned about them. All right. Do you know what the Hebrew says? Don't yell it out. God knows. That's all it says. God saw the situation and God knew. Don't don't you think that's a strange way to end a paragraph? Doesn't it beg a question? What did God know? (laughs) He knew what? And yeah, our translation is a possibility. He knew their trouble, so he was concerned. But I think it's much more than that. It's just one of, you're with me here, aren't you? This is one of the things we hold on to when we walk with God. Uh, Sure, God knew their situation. He also knew his promise. He knew what he would do and he was going to do. God knew. God knew that if he just got them out of slavery at this moment, 
what he had to do would not be complete just in that. God knew that there was going to have to be a wilderness ahead where this group of people would have to be bonded together and actually learn to obey him. He knew that for them to become a nation that would hold together, he was going to have to allow them to have kings, and some of them wouldn't be kings, good kings. He knew that this people could not be wiped out because he knew that through this people, he was going to come to this world through his son. God knew that. God knew that his son was going to have to die in our place in order for us to find any redemption from slavery. He knew that. God knew that there was going to be a day where when what he was going to do was going to be completed, that even these Israelites and these Egyptians who were opposed to one another at that time were going to be in one family together. God looked at that situation and he knew It is one of the most powerful statements in all of Scripture. The Pharaoh thought he knew something. He thought he knew that nobody could defeat him. But he was wrong. It is God who knows. And so the one who was really in trouble at that time was Pharaoh. Because God is omnipotent. And I don't know if you know it. It's hard to stand up against omnipotence. Because there's no limitation in it whatsoever. And the point of the book of Exodus is when we're walking through these hard times, we cannot see it. God knows. Mother's Day. Uh, So many mothers who are here, you understand this. How many times you have to do things as a parent? And and sometimes the child just cannot understand, especially when they're really, really little. When Isabel is really little, you'll have to do things you can't understand. And sometimes you just have to say, "But, but we know something. We know where it would lead if we let you do this, right? Just think God knows that to an infinite degree. He knows what he's going to accomplish. He knew what had to happen here. He is the one who is in control. He is there and he is working out his promise. He is working out his plan. All of this was in God's mind as this happened. He looked at it and he knew. And that is the story of the first two chapters of this sequel. Now to my last part of the sermon lessons or I like to tell stories but what do I want you to take home three things I think there is a powerful lesson here about doing right things that even when you and I cannot see what God is doing in our lives we often at those points know there are some right things we should continue to do right does that make sense to you Have you ever been in the midst of a hopeless situation and you want God to let you know the future, clearly? You do know that there are some things that you should be faithful to do. Fulfilling your promise to your your spouse. uh, Being involved in serving God in your church. Just so many things. Exodus 1 and 2 teaches us that we should continue to do those things that are right and honorable and in obedience to God even while we are waiting to help Him to help us to make sense out of what is happening in our lives. Where, where do we learn that? I tell you, we learn that from these Hebrew midwives who in verse 17 of chapter 1 have their names recorded as a tribute to them and were simply told they feared God and so they did not do as the king of Egypt had told them. They let the boys live. Now, you know that this has caused ethical problems because <laughs> what they engaged in is a clear act of civil disobedience 
And there are a lot of people that this really bothers when they read this, but it's an important point. I just mark it down. That God places authorities in this world. Parental authorities, elder authority, political authority. There's no authority but that which God has appointed. Romans 13 tells us. But there is a higher authority in this world than any of these other authorities. And sometimes in the sinful world, those who have those authority will ask us to do something that is absolutely counter to the commands of God. And then we have a big issue that we have to make a decision about. Whom will we obey? And we are taught here that we obey God. See, Pharaoh couldn't just decree whatever he wanted and say, I am the law, the moral law of the universe. You have to obey him. No, no, no. These midwives somehow knew that there is a God above the Pharaoh and above them and they had to obey the highest moral ruler. So they were going to be good subjects and citizens as long as their laws did not directly this, uh, counter or contradict the laws of God. And one thing that God had said, if you read the first book before the sequel, is that human life is made in God's image. And human life, chapter 9, is not to be taken. And they obeyed God rather than Pharaoh. Many issues in that, right? So I think I'm going to leave as soon as church is out so that I don't have to answer all of them. But I'll tell you this. Authorities are to be respected by us as followers of Jesus. And the Christian norm has always been that you and I are good citizens. But there are times when we must say no to those authorities who change laws so that they contradict the laws of God. That's what the midwives did. We must obey God rather than what you are ordering, O Pharaoh. Now I'll tell you, it brings up countless difficult situations. You may be at work and you're asked to do something, to lie, to be dishonest, and you, are, you say, well, but pastor, I, I can't change the situation. If I don't do what I'm being asked to do, somebody else will. My, my scruples only will make matters worse. Can't you imagine us saying that? That's exactly the situation these midwives were in. I mean, they, they couldn't have known how their defiance could have ever changed that system. But they only knew what was right, and they did what was right, and they left the rest up to God, and Moses was born. So some of us work in companies where our superiors put high pressure on us to be dishonest. Some of us may work in hospitals where we were asked to cooperate perhaps in ways very much like the midwives, even killing unborn lives. I could go on and on, but I simply want to ask, do you know anything that you are being asked to do that is absolutely counter to the commands of God? Do what is right and see what God will do. Second lesson about God's mercy. God uses mightily people who have failed. Any hallelujahs? God knows us and knows we fail and he's still ready to use us mightily. Especially in times of great pressure and difficulty, we make mistakes. Sometimes we sin and you know, sometimes when we have no pressure, we sin anyway. And then we try to hide those things, but sometimes what we've done becomes public Sometimes people won't let us forget it, and sometimes we don't let ourselves forget it. That was certainly the situation with Moses. But I'm just telling you, we can learn something here 
about how God deals with us. But by the way that he dealt with Moses when he did wrong. Now, you make note of this. The biblical record is very clear that Moses did wrong when he killed that Egyptian. Just the way the story is told. He feels guilty about it. He's furtive. He sort of looks this way and that way, hoping nobody will see it. Out of his guilt, he tries to, to cover it up, though it does absolutely no good. So the Bible's describing this as being wrong. And if you agree with me, I think Moses wrote it. <laughs> so I think he's writing it in such a way that we will know that he knew that he had done wrong. And it all misfired. Led to uh, both his own people as well as the enemies disrespecting him and not wanting anything to do with it. And I'll tell you, I know that there are going to be many people who show up at Lake Avenue Church today who, who can relate to Moses. Maybe you do. There's been something in your past. It could have been when you were younger. It could have been recently. That suddenly your family found out about it. Maybe even we in the church found out about it. And you know what you feel like? Well, yes, God will forgive. But now... My future is at best to be second best. Well, look at the life of Moses. Take encouragement. He left Midian in obscurity. He had spent 40 years there, 40 years in the desert. Doesn't that seem like a waste of time? Such promise, never fulfilled, we would think. God can't do anything there. But could he? I just jotted down a few of the things that happened to Moses in the desert. Do you know, Moses needed to learn to survive in a wilderness. You ever thought of that? Two. To be a leader, he needed to learn that people would not always support him. I think I need to keep learning that. Third, I think mostly he needed to learn patience. Patience to let God do... His things in his own way, in his own time, that God didn't need Moses to help him out by killing that man. So all I want you to know is if you have made a major blunder or a major sin, turn from it. Don't do it again. But never think that in the eyes of God that your life is over. It isn't. Our errors don't catch God unaware. He knows. He knows. And he uses those things to shape us. God in heaven, in Exodus 1, wasn't up there wringing his hands, saying, oh no, Moses messed up so that my plans will never be fulfilled. Do you know that? He knew what was going to happen. And he used him mightily. So all i got to say to you, if there's something that in your past just keeps haunting you, give it to God. And then get up. Start obeying Him again, serving Him again, living for Him again. He's still ready to do great things, great things in your life. Any amens? We're a fallen people that God, by His grace, uses in spite of us. It's worth going to church to hear this again. It's worth coming. Third, finally, the main thing is about God's reliability. And I've put it, put it this way. God doesn't often fit our timetables, but he always keeps his word. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his promises. Now, when that word remembered, and I'm going to have a whole sermon on this, comes up in the book of Exodus, it always means God is ready to act. When it comes to his mind, that means it, he is ready to act. 
So I, I'm just saying that I think some of us may come to church today who are groaning inwardly just as much as the Israelites were groaning. You see your situation as one of utter hopelessness. It could be a mess in your marriage. It could be even on Mother's Day, your kids are rejecting your values and rejecting the faith. And, and kids, it may be that your parents are walking away from the faith that they talked to you about. It could be so many things. Well, I want to tell you something. I want you to realize before you go home that God has made promises to His people. What kind of promises? I, if we had hours, I would want to have time for all of us to just yell out promises to one another. Uh, if you haven't read the Bible very much, just read it through and look for the promises that are there. Promises like, if you will confess your sins, I will be faithful and just and will forgive you your sins and cleanse you. There's a promise. A promise that whatever you are facing and wherever you go, I will never leave you or forsake you. A promise that I, I will not give you more than you can bear. A promise that God is there to work all things, all things, together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His promises. See, God was ready to save the Israelites. The people had to pray to Him. And then they had to place their faith in Him. And so that's the question. Is your faith in God? You know that for you to come to Jesus, there has to be this intentional act of faith. You may not understand much about it, but just to enter into this relationship with God as Father, we come and say, I don't understand it all, God, but here is my sin, my past. I give it to you. Will you forgive it? And by faith, we receive his forgiveness. Hallelujah. And by faith, we intentionally say, here is my present and my future. I give it to you. My life is no longer my own. It is yours. And we let him lead us. And then you go out of church after making that kind of statement of faith and we take our lives back under our own control, right? So here you come back into church today and God gives you and me this opportunity of engaging in intentional faith. Saying, Lord, I live for myself again this week. Here are my sins. Will you take them? And he will. Here is this situation in my life. I give it to you. And I trust you until I see what you are doing. Even if that time that I see it will be when I am with you. And I will trust that you will work all these things that are happening in my life for good. And to your glory. The end. The theme, the theme of this book of Exodus is that God is, he is who he is, and he is with us. He is with Israel, fulfilling his promises in their time of slavery. He was with Moses in his time of guilt, and he is with you and me here today. And sometimes all that we have to hold on to is a promise. But I'm telling you on the authority of this word, when that promise is from an omnipotent God, it is enough. To his glory. 
Amen. Ah, let me lead us in prayer. Now, Father, take this, your word, seal it deep in our hearts so that when we leave this place, we will know that we go with your presence. We will go ready to live for you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.